it's Neil Ronahan. Welcome to another episode of Cube Fight, where we have GameCube games fight against each other in battle. And me, Neil Ronahan, and Andy Gergen, who's with me. Finish him! Uh, yeah, we, we determine the winner uh, by using numbers and our gumption. Cubality. Is that a thing? <laughs> I, I, just, I guess we can make I it. Just a, made it a, I made up a goes, new thing. It, everything all goes polygonal. It's the thing where the uh, one GameCube reaches over to the other GameCube and tears out its, uh, I don't know, motherboard? I don't it's, know. It, it's it's expansion port. Go with me here. I'm, 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 I'm making up something cool. I promise. <laughs> All right. So so this is episode four. This is the first one from 2002. Welcome uh, wanna... to the next yeah. level? No, that's not no, right. I don't know. We're, we're 14 years in the, in the past now. It's like January, February 2002. We're all like, man, that GameCube launch was pretty great. What's up next? Have we uh, have we kind of gone over before? I mean, we were recording this like a month apart, but have we gone over before sort of where we were in our lives when these games were, were out? I think we talked about a little bit in the Pikmin Smash episode, but where were you uh, in January 2002? Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Wow, that's a long time ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, about 14 years ago. <laughs> that was I, that was half my life ago when, yep, when that happened. Yep. I was uh, I was entering my fourth and first senior year of college. <laughs> um, I was living in an apartment by myself for the for the first time. Wait, no, January two thousand and two. Yeah, I was I was living in an apartment by myself for the first time. It was uh, it was kind of a it was it was fun because I had never really bought a brand new game system at launch before, and I was living on my own. It was a memorable period, I must say. Which is- which is funny because I'd never really gotten a uh, a game system at launch either. But this one, uh, I didn't buy myself. I got it for Christmas. I guess I got sure. it close to launch because, I mean, my like my Nintendo history. I got an N sixty four. I think like six nine months after launch, or no, even later because it was September. I got it for my birthday, uh, the March March nineteen ninety seven, and that was really my first Nintendo home console that I had during the active lifetime of the system. first episode from from the year of 2002 uh if you're new to the show go back and listen to our past three episodes they're pretty fun uh we went through the first party games that came out in 2001 they fought there was a winner there was a grand champion uh super smash brothers melee was the best first party game of 2001 on the gamecube star wars rogue leader was the best third party game of 2001 on the gamecube according to us and our, our listeners that tracks yeah, so so now we're on, on to 2002, and the games up for this one are NBA Courtside 2002, developed by Left Field Productions and you know published by Nintendo, like all of these. Uh, that came out in February 2002, and Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem is our second game, which didn't come out until June, which, as we all know from Nintendo consoles, there, there's this gap that happens. And there was most certainly a first-party gap for the GameCube after that prolific 2001 launch window. Um, 
then it was kind of just empty. Yeah, so if it's not clear and you haven't listened before, we're specifically putting up Nintendo published first party games in sequential chronological order. That is that is the task at hand. So yes, that that leads you to strange pairings like a basketball simulation versus a uh, psychological horror adventure. And actually, uh, correct uh, a correction. Just a mere minute afterwards, uh, Courtside actually came out in January in North oh, okay. America, then March in Japan and May in Europe. So I guess it was I think it was a launch title in Europe because Europe didn't get the GameCube until May 2002. So let's talk a little bit about NBA Courtside. Were you aware of the fact that this was a Nintendo published game or even what that meant uh, in 2002? I, I knew of NBA Courtside and Nintendo 64, and I knew that that was a Nintendo game in, in the same vein as the, the Ken Griffey games, which is weird to think of, like, Nintendo kind of having, you know, like, athletes for their games. Like, it's it's this weird time back then. Sony had a 989 Sports. They had, what was it, NFL Game Day. Uh, even when the Xbox launched, they had their own sports game. I forget what the name of their... I think Peyton Manning was on on the cover like the first year or two of, that they did that sega had their own one when they had consoles wasn't an nfl quarterback club a nintendo exclusive at the very least i think it might have been like nintendo first because okay. that was a claim and i, I think uh, on the okay. n64 i think quarterback club came out on n64 first i i played some quarterback club because brett Favre was on the cover that's course, the only reason why it, it's not a very good game well. but but yeah but like there's a there's just I knew Kobe Bryant, NBA courtside, in this game by Nintendo. I played some of the N64 one until playing it for this year's show. I never played NBA courtside 2002 on the GameCube. Yeah, same for same here. I um I played a little bit of the N64 game uh, back during the sort of 1995 to 2003 time span of my life. I was a fairly big NBA fan, which is weird because. I mean, it's. I live in Omaha. I, there's not like a exactly a market for NBA basketball here, but for whatever reason, when I was in middle school, I became a Knicks fan, and then shortly after that, I became a Pacers fan. And the Knicks and the Pacers both had a fair amount of success from like the mid '90s to the early 2000s. And um, there was a Super NES game. I think it was NBA Live '96 that my friend Chris and I would just play incessantly. I probably played on that game three or four 84 game seasons, 82 game seasons I, in my I, life. I think I played NBA Live 95 on the Genesis, but in a, in a very similar fashion. But what I would do is I would create my own team because I didn't follow NBA really to any degree. Um, I guess I was like, uh, I, I, I rooted for college basketball. Um, I liked the Syracuse Orange when I was a kid. Um, so like whenever a, a guy from Syracuse would get drafted, like I was rooting for the Denver Nuggets when Carmelo Anthony first got drafted. Um, but then I sure. kind of faded away from that. One of the dudes from Syracuse actually like lives near me now or lived near me. He, I think he's a Malachi Richardson. I think he got drafted by the Sacramento Kings. So I, I, might, I might follow them. I don't know. For at least one of the seasons of NBA Live 96 that I played, I did create a team that was entirely like my friends and, uh, we would we would go through the season and I would tell my friends in real life how they were doing on my NBA team. I don't think that they <laughs> cared, but um, so but anyway, I guess what I was going with that was for years after that, I kept when N sixty four kind of took off. I had a, I had a Saturn at the same time too. 
Um, I got my Saturn and my N64 right around the same time, and I was always looking for the the next evolution of basketball video games. I was really excited about it because I loved where they had been in the Super NES. Um, but the, you know, this ninety NBA Live '95 through '98 on Super Nintendo weren't really different from each other. They were all basically the same game, much like Madden is today, honestly. Yeah. Um, so when like NBA Live '97 hit on like Saturn. I was really excited to get it, but it was it was garbage. It was total garbage. The early 3D sports games, pretty much universally, at least the the sim ones, uh, had real frame rate issues and control issues, and they just weren't fun to play. Uh, I never was able to get into them the way I was able to get into the Super NES ones um, until I played courtside on N64. That was the first basketball game that I played post 16-bit that felt like they emphasized and prioritized um the on-screen action and not the sim part but not at the expense of the sim like they they made the game play well first and then put everything else around it um and so i was very nintendo way of designing oh yeah like it it felt great it didn't have the frame rate problems it didn't feel didn't feel like lurchy and 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 stilted like a lot of the uh, nba live games from like 97 through 2002 felt. Um, and so I never played Courtside 2 until just recently, but I had a I had a high opinion for Courtside 1. So I was I was kind of interested in trying it out and you know my first impressions when I fired it up were that it it did the same. It felt it looked and felt good to me even for a 14-year-old uh, GameCube game. It it didn't aside from the fact that the resolution was low, it didn't feel that dated to me it felt like it still basically held up and i did eventually go back to another bath i played a lot of nba 2k3 on gamecube um and i really liked it and you know that was after the the 2k series had had really taken off and was competitive i think by by 2k3 nba live was starting to fall off a little bit and of course it eventually fell off a cliff so i played a lot of 2k3 i i don't know why i didn't try courtside 2002 more you, you do know there was a there was a second court set on n64 was there really yeah yeah there was i actually oh, had to man. double check because i heard you say court side two and i was like wait a minute i think there was one on this you know what you're right so there was three of these yeah yeah so wow. the, the first one came out on n64 in 98 and then it was kind of it was almost an annualized sports series by nintendo that's uh, insane court side two came out in 99 and then uh instead of doing a third courtside game or maybe maybe some portion of the pe- team working on courtside started working on the GameCube one which would have come out about t- uh, almost 2 years after courtside 2 or I guess a little more uh they made Excite Bike 64 in in between those two with Nintendo and I've then courtside that. 2002 and as we'll kind of get into more detail about very very soon then left field productions the developer of all those games stopped making games with Nintendo Wow. Well, I enjoyed what I played of Courtside 2002, but I am not going to spend a lot of time playing a 14-year-old uh, sports game is the bottom line. I uh, I think it holds up if you are looking to relive the kind of sports games you played during that part of your life. I think it's not a game you're going to go back to and think, this is utter garbage. But, uh, you know, if you're a sports sim fan... There's no way going back to a 14-year-old GameCube game is going to do anything for you, especially since the rosters are literally like an entire 
freshman in high school ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, I started playing as the Sixers, who I guess were in the finals against the Lakers the year before, because mm-hmm. uh, Allen Iverson was like fun to play as. Um, that was kind of my only like connection. Like that that Sixers sure. team has Iverson and Dikembe Mutombo, which like I'm cool with that. Um, but this was really, I was never never been big into the NBA, but this was an especially like blank period of my NBA paying attention to like life. Uh, but I mean, playing the, playing this game, going back to it is kind of rough because as you said, going back and playing a sports game, you know, this far removed from it is, is very hard just in the advances in sweat technology and shiny graphics and lifelike <laughs> stuff and all like, the, you know, they're trying to make it true to the game. Um, you know, kind of falls short as that, but it, it held it holds up a lot better than what I remember some of the other sports games of, or specifically basketball games of like the late nineties, early two thousands. Sure. I think that the ball handling is is pretty exemplary for its time. Holds up decently well. Um, once I got the hang of it, the the concept of like C stick passing is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, like it it felt like it felt like there was a little more strategy in this game than what I remember from like even those those Super Nintendo NBA Live games. Oh yeah, I mean my my NBA strategy has always been as long as I've ever been playing these basketball games has been pass the ball to Reggie Miller and shoot and possibly hard to hit threes and then you usually, and usually hit them. Um, I'm pretty sure I scored over a hundred points in a game with Reggie Miller more than a handful of times. <laughs> Uh, that's what when, that's all I would do. <laughs> a couple of the games I played as the Sixers, I think Iverson would put up like seventy points. Yeah. So like I think this is one of the last years that Reggie Miller played. I, I believe he retired like shortly after that. Um, that uh, Malice and Malice in the Palace, and which was like two thousand and four. Um, so two thousand and two would have been yeah, towards yeah. the Near end, the end of, of his rope, his career, and right around the time the Pacers were having a bit of a resurgence which is why I was paying attention at the time. Um, I haven't paid attention to NBA, unfortunately, in quite some time because it's just, I don't know. If, if the Pacers are deep in the playoffs like they were against uh, LeBron's Heat team three that, years two, ago. Is that really that long um, ago? Yeah, I was still living in Iowa. Uh, so 2013, maybe? Um, yeah, that sounds right. Then I'll pay attention, but I don't really follow it. I will I will, I will make a point to watch the game when when Indiana is doing really well. Um, I wish I could explain why I'm an Indiana fan, but I have no valid explanation for it. <laughs> Reggie Miller is really cool. Reggie like, Miller, there, is there's the best. really no. You don't need any more explanation than that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a fine game, but I I don't think it's going to compare well to a lot of the more video gamer centric video games on our list.
Hindsight 2002 has one review on GenderWorldReport.com. You know, back from the Planet GameCube days. It was reviewed about a month, month and change after release by Stephen Windyman Rodriguez, a former director of this here website. The dude who actually hired me, so blame him if, if you don't like me. Uh, he gave it a 7.5 out of 10. I think that's the lowest score a first-party game has gotten so far. Sounds right. Um, and uh, just kind of going over, we'll, we'll use the pros and cons here. Uh, oh, he, he does like C-Stick Passing. Uh, fun arcade mode. The player faces and arenas look perfect. That's a really funny pro in 2016. <laughs> uh, cons, lackluster commentary. I'll definitely echo that one. Lack of play calling depth. Uh, I don't think I've ever called a play on yeah. purpose in a basketball <laughs> game. <laughs> yeah. um, poor AI and defense in your teammates. I can definitely echo that. There would just be some times where I'd be like, dude, you're just letting him go by you. Oh, like, yeah. Come on. Uh, I do like... I. Yeah, like the AI is not swift, but I do I do like the ball handling and shooting. Like it it feels good, but I I can't say that outside of playing it for like the requisite hour or two for this, I'm never gonna play this game again. No, no. Uh, the, I, I guess I guess the one kind of interesting thing about this is I believe this was kind of a game that like came out and it was known that the developer was done with Nintendo. Uh, because it was Left Field Productions, who, as as we, we said before, they did the courtside games. They did Excite Bike 64. Uh, they started working on the 1080 GameCube game. But uh, shortly after NBA Courtside 2002 was finished, uh, they bought back the stake that Nintendo had bought in, in the company. And they kind of went independent. Um, they didn't do a whole hell of a... Well, they made some things, but nothing that you probably ever would have paid attention to. They came out with another GameCube game, um, Backyard Football, uh, and then they did a bunch of MT, MTV game or ATV games like MTX Moto Tracks, uh, Dave Mira BMX Challenge, um, World Series of Poker. They made a game called Nitro Bike on they the Wii. They eventually shut down, or are they still making games? Um, as far as I can tell, I don't think they're around anymore. <laughs> I can't actually find anything that says they 100% are gone. Uh, but I think it's just like as it, that like after 2011, there is no evidence of them making making games. Hmm. Um, uh, a lot of the people who worked on Courtside 2002 and I, you know, worked with Nintendo on the Courtside games and Excite Bike, uh, they all split uh, shortly after they split with Nintendo. Um, some of those people, there's Umrao, Mayer, Bob Baker, Philip Watts, Al Spong, which were all kind of the creative leads of NBA Courtside 2002. Uh, they went and worked at 2K Sports, uh, or they worked with 2K Sports at a, at a company called Cush Games, and they worked on the NBL, MB, MLB 2K and NHL 2K series for 2K Sports. Uh, so they kept on with their sports background. Uh, eventually, you know, 2K Sports stopped making hockey and, bas- and baseball games, and then... Uh, they made another company that got bought by Zynga at the beginning of this year. Well, their website's down, and the last game they published was in 2011 for PS3 and 360 yeah. called Mayhem. So it does not look likely that they are still available for, yeah. for, for your work. Yeah, sadly. They're, well, I mean, I think after, after the split with Nintendo, all of the people that kind of made that company, that company left. Yeah. It's, kind of like, it's kind of like how after the Metroid Prime games... You know, a bunch of dudes from Retro left to go make Armature. Like, they kind of bailed. And, I mean, there's countless examples of 
you know, like small studio gets bought and, or something happens. It's a big shakeup there and a lot of people leave. Yep. Um, and then the name exists on, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I guess the only other thing of note with the people who worked on this game, uh, Colin Palmer was a producer at Nintendo of America who like worked on this game. He joined up at the Pokemon company in 2005 and he's now a VP at the Pokemon company. So maybe, maybe we'll see Kobe Bryant as a Pokemon. I don't know. Probably not. That would be wonderful. <laughs> it's Kobe-mon. He can evolve into, I don't know, Shaq. old Kobe. He can evolve into Shaq. That seems like a, a statement right there. That... <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, he just, yeah, no one did, no one plays defense against him and he puts up 50 points. That's... Yep, that works. All right, I, I made my, my, my topical NBA humor. I think, I think <laughs> we're, I think we're done with NBA courtside 2002. Farewell, NBA Courtside. It was good to talk to you. Grandpa's funeral took place today. Although the ceremony went well, it did nothing to console me. I feel empty. Lost. Returning to the mansion offers me no comfort. It's cold. Distant. As though it rebels at my very presence. second game for this show is eternal darkness sanity's requiem Ooh, i like it yeah like uh i was i I couldn't wait for this game um i was counting the days this is this is the game where i learned the harsh reality back in the day of uh ship date versus street date (laughs) because i was i would just i went to i would made my parents because i was in you know just graduated eighth grade i think or right around that time yeah because this came out on june 23rd 2002 in north america i came out in japan in october and then europe in november 2002 uh but i think i like showed up to i would be go to local game stores and targets and walmarts and everything like june 20th or something being like hey did you get this game in and they'd be like no kid uh, you can't buy this anyway you're not of the proper age yeah uh but Finally got this game, and back back in 2002, I played the crap out of it. I love this game. I played it played it three times all the way through. Got the secret ending, and man, like Eternal Darkness: Sanity's Requiem was my jam back then. I remember like not quite understanding the game before. Like it was not a game that was on my radar. Like I knew what it, I knew it by name. Like if you told me the name of the game a month before it came out, I'd have been like, oh yeah, that's that GameCube thing that people are talking about. But I wasn't wasn't waiting for it and then it came out and got really good reviews and uh like I think, the pair of 9.5s on planet gamecube yeah um and so i i looked into it and i'm pretty sure i i i think i borrowed it from someone i'm not sure i ever bought it when it was brand new um but man did i love that game Whew. i i really enjoyed this game yeah like uh i i think i um 
I want to say I think Planet GameCube's coverage of this game around the E3 2002 is what made me super excited for it. I'm now kind of glancing at our previews and hands-on. There's a there's a bunch, um, like there was even Carly Carly Young has a hands-on preview from some Nintendo event in September of 2001. Wow. Um, looks like Billy got to play it at Space World uh, in September that year. I'm pretty sure I read a bunch of these articles, and that's what kind of got me hyped. Um, it's weird because I, I wasn't really into horror stuff at this time in my life. I, I think it was just the fact that, like, the sanity effect seemed really novel to me. I did kind of... I, this is around when I, I started kind of attempting to play the Resident Evil games and not really getting that far. Um, I've, I don't know. I, I, and I think the fact that it was made by Nintendo as well is what kind of got me even more excited for it. I think what I remember is looking at screenshots, really, of the game and thinking I, I, I liked the art style um, more than more than really anything else. I, I I don't think I really knew about the sanity effects until I was ready to finally play the game and did a little more research. Um, but it's hard to remember that far back in terms of like how much I was looking forward to it. But um, I did play all the way through the game back in 2002, and I'm pretty sure I played through it again shortly after that because i was trying to get the 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 good ending if you will the 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 hidden ending that you get for beating the game three times through all three paths but i never did i never did that and Uh, i'm I'm, i apologize if you've never played this game and you didn't know that there was a secret ending after the beating it three times i know uh i got into hot water with a friend of mine because i spoiled what happened after the the hidden ending um if that that i this friend uh, is subscribed to this podcast, so so sorry, Adam. I know it's been a long time. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, that was dumb. That was mean. But but uh, I mean, I, I got really into the story of this game too. Like the setup for it of, of playing the, the kind of anthology style, um, you know, playing as characters in different times and then revisiting those same places throughout history was just really interesting and seeing how everything looped together and sometimes things would f- flow chronologically. Sometimes you would you know, play it in the future, then go back to the past. It was all just like Epic. really, really, yeah, it was really neat and novel. And yeah, you, you were saving, saving the known universe by the end of this game. And it was, it was incredible and just a lot of variety and even combat styles. You were a, you were a real Roivas. That's what you were. Yes. Um, I, I just really love the Epic feel of the game. Just the, the, the fact that you're, playing a story that like takes place throughout all of this time and space. Um, and, uh, there's the, the underground city feels really cool. Like there's just something about this game that just makes it feel like it's more than the sum of its parts. Um, so when I went, when I went back to it, I was, I was really kind of expecting the gameplay to not hold up that well. It's, but, and it maybe the, the cutscenes too, since, the game is pretty narrative heavy. Yeah. Um, I had a, I had a bad feeling that the, a lot of the narrative and action elements really wouldn't feel like something I really wanted to sit through again, but I don't think they're too bad. I mean, it's got full voice acting, right? I mean, maybe not full voice acting. It's and got a lot voice of voice actors acting. too. Like uh, Jennifer Hale does the, she does um, Alexandra Roivas. Uh, I think um, David Hayter, Cam Clark, um, I should have looked up a cast list, but I, I like I know all those people are in it. And the David Hater's Solid Snake, right? Um, Jennifer Hale is Samus um, in the Metro Prime games. Uh, she's also done. I think she was Fem Shep in Mass Effect as well. 
Hmm. Uh, but like it, it has a, it has a fantastic voice cast, and and I think that the I think that the writing is honestly pretty solid. Yeah. What I remember liking the most about Eternal Darkness probably was the the magic system. There was like a vocabulary that you would learn as you played the game, and uh, Bargon, Bargon, you would yeah you, you would you would start to understand how it all worked, Shatter and you'd be able to you'd be able to make up your own spells oh because you would learn what the components did, yeah. and you could even before you learned the spell you could basically put it together, uh, which was really cool. I liked the way that worked. It just the whole thing had a had an interlocking system that kind of slowly made itself apparent to you over the course of the game. And it just it felt good when that all began to click. It felt it felt like you had earned sort of this really cool knowledge. And it wasn't something the game overtly told you, it was something you picked up over time. Yeah. It, like it was really fun going back and replaying it, honestly, because you would have that it wouldn't be guessing that knowledge. Like you would straight up have that knowledge. Yeah. So you'd be able to pull off like way better magical attacks early on because you just knew what to do with it. Yep. Yep. And the sanity effects uh, are a huge part of this game, huge selling point of this game, and they did not disappoint. Um, all a lot of them got me, where I'd be like, "Why did my dude's head just fall off?" Mm-hmm. And they are kind of like, you know, especially knowing the tricks now and going back to play it, it's a little like goofy, but it's 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 not a detracting goofy. It's still very fun. I think my favorite one is the uh, where you go through a door and then it's like. And it like gives you a next time on Eternal Darkness yep. two screen. It's like, wait, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, good. Yeah, good it's, 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 oh man, yeah, I I really enjoy this game, and I I might actually finish my playthrough that I started to kind of refresh my memory on this. It it played a lot better than I remembered because uh, I did replay it. Uh, there is a Radio Free Nintendo podcast episode where they uh, play, did a retroactive for Eternal Darkness. Uh, maybe we will look up that episode number and put that in the show notes here. Um, sure, but I played it around then and thought it was kind of janky. Uh, but playing it now, it's still kind of janky, but way better than my memory from a couple of years ago led me to believe. Yeah, I, I would say the game basically holds up like you would hope it would, as long as you're not, you know, delusional and hoping for what feels like a t- 2016 AAA title. Yeah, I mean, it is still a GameCube game. It is still a 14 year old video game, so. Temper your expectations accordingly, but but don't worry. It it it, it is still a compelling piece of software, um, and quite frankly, a really decent one hit wonder for Silicon Knights. Yeah.
We have two 9.5 reviews from back in the day. One of them is from Mr. Jonathan Metz, or I guess Dr. Jonathan Metz. Uh, he gave it a he gave it a nine point five. Um, he was he was Mister then. Yeah, yeah, he was he was he was just trying to become a doctor back then. He yeah. might have might have still been in high school, maybe early college. I don't know. I don't something, know. something around there. Uh, he credited the deep, involving story. Uh, he really dug the gameplay, the graphics, and the sound, and credited the voice acting as some of the best he ever heard in a video game. Uh, he did kind of uh, call out some of the puzzles for being dumb. And also how all the characters get really tired very fast. Like you'd yeah. have that running, especially I remember playing as Roberto, like the the kind of overweight guy who gets put into like the Tower of Humans or whatever. And mm-hmm. I just feel like I'd walk two feet and it'd be like, oh, he's huffing and puffing again. Crap. Yeah. But I like the variety of like the way that the characters even felt. Like they they all felt very distinct and. Even even when you, you there were times where you were playing the same location again, but you'd be going in there with the you know the the what you call it the Gulf War guy, uh, Michael, and he had machine guns, whereas you previously went through that with the dude Roberto who had like a crappy sword. Yeah. Um, and that that just seeing like almost attacking things from a different perspective was was always really fun. No, it had a lot of variety, and it just. The, the sort of the attack the body part of your choice combat uh, I think is fun it allows you it allows, it allows some variety in the way you approach encounters um, even though you kind of end up taking the most useful strategy of getting rid of the head first you know as often as you can um, but I really I, I think the um, art style is really strong especially in those like gothic churches. It just feels very um, atmospheric. It feels very um, real. It has a real sense of, uh, of of context and grounding that is it's um, very appreciable, uh, even in 2016. So yeah, that's that's Eternal Darkness. Any any other things to say? Um, no, no. I think we said literally everything you could say about two games <laughs> that came out in 2002. Uh, so before we before we go to the grading, um, let's let's look at some of the the men behind Eternal Arc Senators Requiem. Uh, producer director was Dennis Dyack, who who um, I don't know. He says a lot of things on the internet. Some of it seems pretty dumb. I don't know, man. He's bad at crowdfunding. Yeah, uh, he tried that. Yeah, they tried to make a kind of spiritual successor to this in Shadow of the Eternals. I think like four times at this point, and none of it's really worked yeah. out. I think they are supposedly still working on it. So yeah, they, maybe I think they would tell you that they have not given up yet. Yeah, like um, they're I trying to. They are. They think, are wrong. <laughs> I think the company's like Quantum Entanglement, something yep. or other, and they're trying right. to like make it a TV show and a video game. I don't know. Like, best of luck to them. Wish them well. The problem uh, with that is they really can't make a sequel to Eternal Darkness. All they can make is a spiritual successor because yeah. Nintendo owns the rights to that game and they're not doing anything with it ever again. Yeah. Almost Although certainly. I, I think Eternal Darkness, I think the copyright that Nintendo had might have expired. I don't know if they re-upped. The best thing that could ever happen to Dennis Dyack and his whatever game company he, he owns at the time this happens is Nintendo starts releasing downloadable GameCube games and puts uh, Eternal Darkness out on some sort of a virtual console service. Yeah, so that's the best case scenario for Dennis Dyack at this point. I, I kind of agree with that. But here's here's the thing that I didn't really 
I didn't really get until I started diving into the people behind this game. There are listed two other directors, assistant directors, that worked on this game, both from NCL. Really? So it's uh, Tatsuya Hashida and Hiro Yamada. Okay. Um, Yamada, I couldn't. I, I think Hiro Yamada is kind of a more common Japanese name. Uh, I did not do like my full-on insano research for this one, uh, but I did poke around with what I could find for uh, Yamada and Hashida. Hashida has been at NCL since 1987. He worked on a lot of weird stuff, like the Famicom Grand Prix games. That one of them was like a 3D game on the NES, or okay. I guess the Famicom. They never came out in America. Uh, he was a director on Stunt Race, Stunt Race FX. Uh, he worked with Miyamoto on Mole Mania. He was an artist on all the Pokemon Stadium games. Uh, and then he worked on Eternal Darkness. After Eternal Darkness, he worked on Mother 3, Excite Truck, New Super Mario Brothers 2, and most recently, uh, he was involved in Zelda Link Between Worlds and Super Mario Maker. Well, that's crazy. Yeah, and, and Yamada... Uh, most recently, there there were a couple interviews with him from about a year year or so ago. He worked with Monster Games on Xenoblade Chronicles 3D. Wow. Uh, he's also credited in Pushmo, Excite Truck, Pilot Wing 64, Pilot Wings Resort, and Ocarina of Time and Mario 64. So it's possible he had a lot to do with the success of uh, Eternal Darkness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems yeah. like like. It's the kind of thing that playing some of Silicon Knights' other games, like, I'll, I'll point out Too Human. I don't think Too Human is completely terrible, but there's something about Eternal Darkness that kind of left out to me when I was replaying it now, is that it's, like, just a, a very soundly crafted game. Yeah. Like, it flows well, the pacing's good, it's fun. Some of the puzzles are a little, like, adventure gamey, a little bullshitty, but it's it's just it's just really good, and it, it definitely kind of has that Nintendo touch that people always talk about. And it seems like Hashida and Yamada's work on Eternal Darkness, might, maybe that's part of the reason sure. why there was that Nintendo touch. Uh, well, the, those go. those were, it seems, the only two major, you know, Nintendo internal guys who worked on this game. I mean, like Ten- Kensuke Tanabe, who most recently, um, he, he he's been working with, like uh, I guess like Western third parties for years. He worked with Next Level Games on on their recent games. He worked with Retro for a while. Um, I think he worked with Monster Games. Um, he probably worked with Hashida and Yamada before. Uh, he was he was the the internal Nintendo producer on this game. There's a whole litany of other game designers and artists and programmers from Silicon Knights that worked on this game. So I'm not going to give all of the credit to the two Japanese dudes who worked on it, but it seems like. With their their experience dating back to the you know the 80s and 90s at, at Nintendo during their heyday, they they probably helped out a lot. Yeah, I would agree. And um, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of who worked on Eternal Darkness. One of one of the Nintendo of America, like uh, I guess like the producers on it is actually Jeff Callis, who's a friend of the site, and he oh, works sure. at Penny Arcade. The Penny Arcade um, guy. Yeah. yeah. He was um, on um. RFN talking about Geist, I seem to recall. Yeah, I think that was one point. of his. I think that was one of his last products projects at Nintendo before right. he went to join Penny Arcade. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a while, but we'll get there. That's a Nintendo yeah. published game. Two thousand and five, I think. Right. Yeah, so, very yeah. late. I think it was supposed to be two thousand four, but that, yeah, that, well. that was not meant to be. <laughs> That's how but these yeah. things work. But yeah, I mean, NBA Courtside and Eternal Darkness are kind of bittersweet in a way. Because I, well, I mean, I guess Silicon Knights did did make Metal Gear Solid: The Twin Snakes with Konami and Nintendo, but it was kind of 
these these solid, well-made games from early on in the GameCube's life that probably should have led to better things over the years. And outside of Metal Gear Solid Twin Snakes, which I think is pretty good. Once again, I I, I don't I guess we'll get that. I don't know. I don't know if we're technically counting that as a Nintendo published game because that was Konami. Sure. Um, but and we'll talk about the Twin Snakes in some fashion later on in the show. But yeah. it, it's kind of sad because you know Left Field's gone and Silicon Knights is gone, and both of these games, while you know, I mean, not as wild about courtside as I am Eternal Darkness, but they're both good games. They're both good. Yeah, they're both solid. Shall we get to the? Uh... The numbers, tail of the tape? I think it's about that time. All right. So if you uh, are joining us for the first time, or if it, or if it has been a month since you listened to one of these podcasts, as is, as is the case for at least me and Neil, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, here are the here's the way this works. We're gonna we're gonna score both of these games on three categories. Uh, the first category, and these are scales from zero to ten. Uh, the first category is legacy slash importance, and that's pretty self-explanatory. But it deals with how uh, crucial the game is to the um, the legacy of the GameCube, and what is the legacy of this game in general. Um, just where, what is the game's place in history, and how how relevant is it uh, in the grand scheme of things? Uh, the second category is the test of time, which is to say, if you pick it up in 2016. How does it feel? How does it hold up? Uh, does it still is it still a game you want to play now? Uh, and the third category is the completely arbitrary fun factor, where we just give the game a rating based on what we think uh, the rating should be, um, which is sort of you know it's up to us. And then after both of us have given each each of these games a score from one to from zero to ten in each of these three categories, we will reveal the game that we feel is the better of the two games, which may be completely d- divorced from our ratings <laughs> as we see fit. Uh, we'll reveal simultaneously, and if we ever come up with a tie, we will probably need to invent a tiebreaker on the spot because we have not <laughs> decided ahead of time how to... <laughs> I what, think I have a coin that? nearby. Yeah. <laughs> I think we decided we might like just call Zach Miller on the show yeah. and make him decide, but that would require him to be available. We haven't yeah, planned we that far just, ahead. Like, put an email out to the staff being like, who's around? We, we haven't had to sell something. We haven't had to worry about it yet, but uh, so I will go ahead and start and we'll go ahead and kick it off with um, NBA Courtside 2002. All right. And I will give it a score for, uh, d- d- remind me, do we do each category first? You you go, I go, or is it I, mean, I do we, all three categories? I, do you, you, know, do you remember? Let's, let's do, in the, in the past, we've done it where a person gives all of their categories, but let's let's do it differently. Okay. So, so what's your legacy slash importance for NBA Courtside? Sure. Um, for, for NBA Courtside 2002 on legacy, slash importance um i am thinking this game has i'm kind of of two minds about it because from from a legacy standpoint this is one of the last sports games nintendo ever made uh published really um they you know they made mario sports games still and they they'll put out like a like an ssx not ssx sorry 1080 um a sports game occasionally but they for the finished most a part, baseball game. Nintendo Penetrate Baseball was yeah, done and never I mean, came out. This is this is sort of one of the last times, if not the last time, that Nintendo made a licensed sports sim on their home platform. Uh, so from that standpoint, it is important, but it's important in so much as it has no legacy. So it's it's difficult to really say. I, I, I'm actually going to go down on on the side of the lack of legacy. I'm going to give this a 5.0 on the legacy importance because I feel like 
the fact that th- this game effectively ended any chance of legacy. And, and that's not the game's fault, but uh, Nintendo completely veered away from sports games. So based on what Nintendo is today, I think this game has very little, very little importance in the grand scheme of things. I, I agree with that, but to a much harsher degree, um, I feel like NBA Courtside 2002 is the kind of game that I could mention to the majority of Nintendo fans in 2016, and a lot of them would be like, wait, did Nintendo publish that? Yeah. Um, I I don't think this game really has any kind of legacy, and like you said, the only importance is that like it's kind of the last of a bygone era. Um, I give this for legacy and importance, I give it a 2 out of 10. Woo! Damn. Spitting that fire. Spitting that fire. It's just like I I probably would have forgotten this if it weren't for like looking at a list of Nintendo published games. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is bound to be the one game in a sporkle quiz that you never guess. Yes. <laughs> um so let's move on to the test of time. You pick up a GameCube controller in twenty sixteen, you fire up NBA Courtside two thousand and two. Uh what do you what do you think? Um this was uh something that I didn't expect much from, uh, but I, I basically enjoyed it enough to play 10 minutes or so. I mean, I bought the game and played maybe a half an hour's worth, uh, you know, to prep for this podcast, which will tell you both <laughs> how much I was willing to put in. Uh, keep that in mind when you yell at me on Twitter about my ratings. Um, but it also tells you that, like, this game, it, it's... If, if you're a basketball sim fan, you're not going to play a game from 2002. Uh, if you if if the thing you want to play is the kind of sports game you played when you were in college or high school or whenever it was you you were doing in 2002, I think you'll find it holds up just fine. Um, but it's hard to say that it's a game you're going to want to seek out. I'm going to give it again. I'm going to give it a five. I'm I'm on almost the same exact page. Um, I mean, it's if you if, yeah if you were into if you were into the NBA in 2002. This game would still probably hold up to this day. I think it's a very competent basketball game, but I, I think that you would need to have a nostalgia for both the NBA in 2002 and the Nintendo GameCube for it to really mean anything. So I'll give it a five for the test of time. You know, it's funny when I when I was in the courtside main menu, there was an option at the very bottom called roster update, and I foolishly thought to myself, that's crazy. The server definitely isn't still online. <laughs> let's let's see what it does. And so I went to the, the roster update, and much to my surprise, it went to a character edit or a roster editor. And I was like, yep. "Oh, right. There's not even a freaking internet port on the GameCube. What was I expecting?" Yeah. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> um, and then down to the fun factor. Um, you know, NBA Courtside 2002 is a basketball sim. Most people don't care about basketball sims. If you do, you know. Um, and at this point in my life, I, I don't really care about basketball sims. So, uh, sorry, NBA courtside, but uh, I'm going to give you a, uh, you know, I'll, I'll bump it up to a 5.5 5, uh, for the fun factor just because I, there was a time in my life when this game would have held a lot more appeal to me than it does now. So, it gets a half point bump. But for the most part, I'm going to give this game a big uh, thumbs down. Yeah, um, I'll give it a four for fun factor for a lot of the same reasons. I'm just slightly more negative than you. That's fine. I mean, like I said, I played through multiple seasons of NBA Live 2000 or 96 and NBA 2K2, uh, NBA 2K3 on GameCube. Like I, there's been parts of my life where I was really into these, uh, but those parts of my life are, you know, 15 to 20 years ago. So, 
Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's go ahead and move on then to Eternal Darkness. I'll let you kick it off with Legacy Importance. Uh, so Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem is a game that I think is very important for the GameCube. I mean, not to the not to the degree of some other first-party games that have already come out in this and ones that will come out shortly after it. Like, it's definitely not on the same same level as a Pikmin or a Melee or something like that. Uh, but I think that this is a pretty important game in the GameCube's lifespan and Nintendo in general. It's a mature-rated game. That was a rarity. And uh, I think as far as Legacy... I mean, people still kind of collect their... While the Shadow of the Eternals Kickstarter and everything might have failed, there was a fervor around that. And the only reason why I kind of got shot to shit was a little bit because of how Silicon Knights reportedly handled their business uh, in, in you know the years after Eternal Darkness, which I don't think really negatively affects the game itself. Although I guess maybe in the grand scheme of things it does hurt its legacy. But regardless of anything, I give this for legacy importance, I'll give it a six. Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, the the crowdfunding efforts that Dennis Dyack went through for uh, Shadow of the Eternals, the, the the story was much the same no matter who talked about it. And it's, man, I really would have loved this ten years ago, but now you know I'm I don't want anything to do with Dennis Dyack or his crowdfunding efforts. Yep. Um, I I don't have a problem with the man the way that a lot of other people do. Um, but I'm certainly not going to, you know, judge people for their opinions on Dennis Dyack. I think the guy has had plenty of opportunities to redeem himself and has failed, failed to do so miserably, uh, across the board. Um, Eternal Darkness is his thing. It's, it's the one thing that makes him important to the game industry for the, I mean, you, you can, I think there was like a, the, what, a Legacy of Kane game before this. And then there was the Metal Gear game after this, but really. And too human. We all know we all know Dennis Dyack's name because of this game. Um, it is probably one of the games that the GameCube is is known for. Like if you were to ask anybody their top five GameCube exclusives, especially if you told them they had to exclude like Zelda and, and Metroid and Mario, this is one of them. This is one of those games everyone kind of wants to have in their GameCube collection because it's important to the history of the system. So. Um, did you give it a score? I forget. I gave it a six. You gave it a six. I'm actually going to go a lot higher than that. I'm going to go with an eight point five wow. uh, legacy and importance because I do feel like this game, this this game is sort of what I will consider to be a rare breed now, which is a third party, highly respected, mature game that's exclusive to the GameCube. So, you know, I, uh, I, I'm gonna uh, if we're doing half points, I'm doing a six point five. All right, all right. Eight point five for me, six point five for you. Yes. Uh, test of time, Neil. How does Eternal Darkness hold up today? Uh, I, I think it holds up a lot better than I expected. As I was saying earlier, um, it's still, you know, it's a there's some jank in this game for sure, but I, I, I think that it's still really fun. I think that the puzzles still kind of work. I think, um, even if the sanity effects are maybe a little, a little less outstanding now, um, they're still pretty cool and. Yeah, some of the jump scares still work. Some of the spookiness still really works. For the test of time, I'll, I'll give this an 8. I think it holds up really well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think it's a little cheesier, and maybe that's just more me uh, in 2016 versus me in 2002. Definitely. Like, like, it, like I, it's It's got a little bit of that, like, sort of, like, I don't know. I played this as a freshman in high school. It was amazing. Yeah, I think... <laughs> 
there's an element of there's an element of like Cthulhu fatigue I think going on right now with me where like it seems it seems like you can't walk into a board game store without tripping over eight games named after Cthulhu and yeah. this game has the same aesthetic as that and you know it probably wasn't as big of a deal when I was in college and it was 2002 uh, versus now um, but you know that's so that's sort of a nitpicky thing I think the game holds up pretty well uh, maybe not as well as it did you know. Uh, in 2002 but uh i'll you know i'll I'll give this uh, i'll give this a a 7.5 all right and then fun factor neil how's how fun is it i think it's pretty fun um i don't know for this one more so than other games i feel like the fun factor and test of time kind of go hand in hand a lot more sure um i'll still give it an eight uh for a lot of the reasons that i said in the test of time I, I think that while yeah the writing's a little cheesy, I think that it's still a, a pretty fun story throughout, and I I think it's I, I really I expected to go and replay you know the chunk of this game that I replayed for this, and I expected to have it be a slog, but it was surprisingly like it was surprisingly good for for a you know like a Resident Evil style game from two thousand two. Yeah, you know, I didn't get more than about ninety minutes into my into my cube fight specific replay of this game, but uh, I intended to play more, and I still intend to play more. Uh, I really like it. You know, I'm gonna go ahead and give it an eight as well. I think it's a, I think it really holds up. It's a, that's the wrong category, but still, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's it's weird because I, I haven't I haven't had this dilemma with any of the other games that we've gone through, but I feel like Eternal Darkness, the test of time and fun factor are almost identical yeah because you know i I think for games that hold up well that's the that's the thing is they hold up well because they're still fun games that don't hold up well might still be fun if if you just are able to put up with the fact that they don't hold up well um another another example might be like test of time and fun factor with melee uh it's kind of still the same thing if the game really really holds up then you know, it's still fun. Presuming you th- thought it was fun in the first place, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, that ends the scoring part of our, part of our cube fight. Now we just got to both say who we think wins. So I Neil, think, I think this is pretty easy. So, uh, I guess that's kind of down three, three, two, two one, one. Eternal, eternal darkness, darkness sanity's, sanity's requiem. requiem. I'm sure that was super easy to edit together. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, this this became very evident, as especially as we talked about Courtside. Even when I was playing Courtside, it became very evident. I don't think there was any chance in hell Courtside was ever going to beat Eternal Darkness, unless you put that unless you put Eternal Darkness in and it just played like garbage, which I just didn't see happening. Um, it's it's a game that's far more important. It's far more fun to play, uh, unless you're a super big fan of the NBA circa 2002. Uh, there's just no way this game doesn't doesn't come out on top. Yeah. Uh, so that does it for the first episode of 2002, episode four of our lovely show here. Uh, next time, next month, um, we'll actually try to get these out regularly on the month, yeah. which, which I think we, we slipped up a little bit between June and July. Um, but we're gonna yeah. try to get get better on a schedule here. Neil, what's uh, next? Uh, ne- uh, next uh, episode five will be Disney's Magical Mirror, starring Mickey Mouse, what? which is. Like a point-and-click adventure developed by Capcom, published by Nintendo. Miyamoto was a producer on it. Uh, it'll be that going up against Super Mario Sunshine, 
Wow. Well, I can't wait to figure out how Mario Sunshine can overcome these odds. That'll be that'll be really tough, but it's just looking looking even more ahead. Uh, so we got that up next month. Uh, rounding out the rest of 2002, we will have Animal Crossing versus Star Fox Adventures, and we will have Mario Party 4 versus Cube 4 Survival of the Fittest, and then uh, Metroid Prime kind of gets a first round bye. And really, I, like I don't want to sound <laughs> like Metroid Prime won this year. Like we'll we'll get to a point. We'll vote on it. We'll go through all the rigmarole. But let's get real. Like maybe Sunshine can hold a candle to Metroid Prime. But like that one, Metroid Prime is. I mean, it's, it's, it's his to lose. Yeah. Right. I mean, hers to lose. Maybe, yeah, hers to lose. Uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of people who would disagree that Metroid Prime is the best GameCube game ever made. I mean, so, uh, well, I mean, I, I think when we get down to it, it's going to be Prime versus Melee for the top spot. Yeah, Wind Waker, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we'll but we'll see. Um, we'll get to that soon. Uh, and until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Check us out on Patreon. Uh, if you're if you're hearing this and you're on the Patreon already, that means you're probably a patron. As this uh, this episode goes out early to patrons, and then it goes out to everybody on the podcast feed. And if you're listening to it on the podcast feed, considering uh, supporting us on Patreon, you get to be involved with the voting when we get to that point for both the first party game of the year and the third party game of the year. Uh, and you also get to listen to stuff early, and we, we might do other fun stuff along the way involved with the Wild World of Cube Fight, along with a whole lot of other things that we're doing at Nintendo World Report as we march forward into whatever the hell Nintendo is doing with the next couple of years. Can't wait. Can't wait to do NX Fight in 15 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, or we could, do, we could do Wii Fight, um, we which sounds like a game that. that came out. Like <laughs> That's kind of... That's that's the winner. Uh, we fight. Oh, you, you can email us at uh, cubefight at nintendoworldreport.com Also, if you have any comments about this episode or uh, suggestions for future episodes or listener mail, yeah, uh, email us at cubefight at nintendoworldreport.com or go to the talkback page on the article or comment on the Patreon post. There's so many ways to get a hold of us. You can find us on Twitter. I am uh, uh, at nwr underscore drewmg, and I'm, Neil, I'm you are at enron ten. And uh, we will probably tweet at you, or you can tweet at us, and we will respond. Yeah. I don't tweet on that account a ton. I have another account that's for my personal stuff. Sure. If you if you know it, you can find it. <laughs> if, if you are the world's foremost left field productions NBA courtside 2002 fan, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. That'd be that'd be interesting. We'll interview you on our next episode. <laughs> All right, Neil. Thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, that was a lot of fun, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye bye. To think. At once I could not see beyond the veil of reality. To see those who dwell behind. I was once a fool.